Hey everyone, welcome and thank you for joining our webinar today. I'm going to be your MC and host, Mike. I'm the community manager at Manufacture.com. Manufacture.com helps consumer brands source, manufacture, and finance their inventory. With our 700 vetted vendors across 25 countries, we make the manufacturing process a breeze for consumer brands. You can manage the entire process from one dashboard. Today's discussion, um, which we talked to a lot of brands and um, they had a lot of questions around debt and equity. So we wanted to make this webinar about debt and equity, how to finance your consumer brand and how to think about these two growth levers for your business. Um, we really want to make um, this um, as useful and helpful as possible. So if you do have questions, please utilize the chat um, and we will and we, and we will do our best in order to, uh, to get to them and answer them. Um, our panelists for the day, which I'm super excited about, we have Cessna Mack, who is, a, who is a principal at Amberstone. Amberstone is a venture capital and private equity firm that backs ambitious entrepreneurs scaling brand-first consumer product companies into nationally distributed category leaders. Some of their investments include Honey Mamas, Partake Brewing, Mush, and Juneshine. We have Keith Kohler, who is the president of, of K2 Group and advises consumer brand operators and entrepreneurs what types of financial products best fit their needs. And finally, we have Jonathan Morocco, who is a fractional CFO and vice president at FlowFi. FlowFi is a first-class finance team and platform that delivers accurate books and actionable uh, financial advice to, uh, to brands and to businesses. And like I said before, we really want to make this as helpful and useful as possible. What's really, I think, interesting and, and what, 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 what will hopefully be interesting about today is we have um, both um, people that represent the equity side and also people that also advise uh, founders on the debt side. Uh, so you can hear hopefully different perspectives around um, around these issues, around um, different growth levers for your business. With all that being said, I know that was a lot. With all that being said, l l let me bring up our, our panelists. Cessna, Keith, and Jonathan, thank you all so much for joining us today. How are you? Great. Well, good to be here. Awesome. Awesome. Um, so why don't I first start off, you know, at like a macro sense, if you are a growing consumer brand, how should you use and think about debt versus equity in order to finance and as levers for your business? Maybe Cessna, we'll start with you on this one. Yeah, I think this might be a bit of a hot take, but I'm actually of the opinion that to the extent you don't need to raise either debt or equity, very much try not to. Uh, my background, my parents um, were immigrants, and we very much focus on if you don't have cash, don't spend it. That said, in starting up a business, it's um, there are just some working capital needs in particular to get things off, off the ground. And so I think when I think about the idea of using debt or equity there before even thinking through either, I would do my best to really focus on how do you know that you've found some element of product market fit that you yourself would be willing to back um, before bringing on outside partners. I, I really appreciate that response. How about you, Keith? What's your take? Yeah, I'd love to build on that. I think Cessna really introduced that in a very uh, exciting way because oftentimes founders do forget to think about how they strategically choose to build their business and get the rest of their partners on board and have alignment as to strategically, are we going to go super fast? Are we going to take a more moderate route to growth or a more slow-paced growth? Because um, having that alignment up front is really super critical. 
And then from that, and then understanding your cash requirements and what your uses could be over some time frame that feels um, manageable and what I call bite-sizable. Uh, then from there, you can choose how to formulate what I think can be the best holistic strategy, looking to combine Cessna's equity and debt sources that uh, I could come up with as well so that it's really the right use of equity for equity purposes and debt for debt purposes over time. Yeah, and, and I, would, I would just add early early on, you might not have a choice. Um, you might not be able to find a bank or a lender willing to underwrite your business. You have you know, no history, you haven't yet proven product market fit, et cetera. So um, you might be forced as you know, a founder to put your own capital into the business. But as you know, the business matures, um, I think it makes a lot of sense to utilize debt for working capital needs inventory purchases in, in this case. And, you know, once you've really proven product market fit, um, you can use equity to really jumpstart the growth, invest, acquisition, marketing spend, things like that. Do you mind, Jonathan, because um, I appreciate this discussion around maybe you shouldn't be using these two levers until you've actually achieved some type of product market fit. Can you describe what product market fit uh, metrics wise kind of means to you? Jonathan? Sure. I mean, at, at the highest level, it means revenue growth, right? If, if you have product market fit, that means there's a demand for your product. And that means, you know, your demand is growing, your revenue is growing, and it should be relatively easy to continue to, you know, grow that revenue at a low, you know, customer acquisition cost. When it comes to the actual revenue, um, in terms of like, um, like the minimum kind of amount of revenue where it actually makes, where you can actually maybe define or categorize a company as product market fit. Keith, how do you think about what that actually would be? Um, from a perspective of someone getting debt financing, actually it is possible to get debt financing as a startup and pre-revenue company to fund initial elements, such as uh, the ones that Jonathan mentioned in working capital production, et cetera, particularly if there's strength some other place, if you have significant collateral, very high credit score, or if you're going to some of the alternative lenders, such as CDFIs or community-based lenders. Um, product market fit, usually for me, as far as when you start getting access to more attractively priced debt options, usually comes in at around the high hundred thousands to a million dollars in revenue. And then, because that's when slightly higher, lower priced um, financing options can kick in. And if in that rare circumstance, uh, uh, the brands are extremely high margin and can turn a profit, which can happen, for example, on a completely direct-to-consumer supplement line. I've seen that in the high hundred thousands turn profitable. Many, many more options uh, kick in. So I think it's a really broad-ranged answer. And I appreciate we're talking about this because I think all the people here as part of this call really should take a close look and examine what this means for them. From from an equity perspective, Cessna, um, how do you, because I know that you invest in brands around the Series A and obviously, correct me if I'm wrong, at Amberstone um, and all in you know the food and beverage um, categories. How do you define when you're looking at companies what product market fit is? Because I know that's kind of maybe a requirement for you all before you make the investment. Absolutely. And you know, I echo a lot of what Jonathan and Keith shared. Um, for us, by the time at which we invest, what we're looking for is not only around revenue growth, which I think is a preliminary indicator that you might have found product market fit. I think supporting that, we're also looking at the quality of that revenue as we've defined it. And for us, the product market fit is reflective of the level of repeatability or to what the confidence in being able to identify 
how that you will get consumers to purchase. So if your product is a buy it once and, you know, type of product and it lasts for many years, that is uh, one business strategy for us that's a little more challenging enabled in, in order to truly identify the product market fit. What we're really looking for oftentimes is that repeat purchase and how do you how do you continue to prove that you can get consumers coming back to you as a company, but truly as a brand. And that's the level of showing brand equity. So we are looking at things. If you're on e-com, what repeat purchase metrics look like? If you're subscription, if you offer subscription, is your subscription base or consumer base continuing to grow? We're also looking at retention. So are you continuing to see LTV um, continue to grow across cohorts? And then if you're more brick and mortar and we invest in a lot of brands that sell through wholesale or through retail channels, we're also looking at velocities. So how uh, this might look like, how many units per SKU per store um, are, you be, are you able to sell per week? And I'd imagine on the velocity side, you're probably measuring against competitors and and looking at different analysis and seeing and talking to your retailers and, and, and trying to gauge, are you maybe in like the top 70% or 80% on the velocity side and that you might measure that as maybe a product market fit per se. Is that is, is that roughly right? I think that's a good way to put it. We are obviously a lot of the brands are early and we're thrilled to be those partners at the emerging, more emerging state of uh, brands growth and um, so we are looking relative to the competitors in this space as well. And what does your trajectory look like in in relation to some other metrics and how much you've been able to invest against it versus not? Um, and so it's it's a much more comprehensive discussion. On the on the e-commerce side, does it um does first order profitability matter more than um uh, versus, you know, a strong LTV CAC rate uh, ratio, or like, if you take those kind of two things, first order profitability or strong LTV CAC, which one would you prefer if you had to analyze two businesses? I'm happy to kick off. Um, for us, it's really looking at that repeatability, that LTV to CAC. There are some business models that allow you to achieve first order profitability. And that's really wonderful. I see this a lot through bundling strategies and increasing that first time AOV, but sometimes it might work against you. So for example, if your way of getting there is to sell three sets of your product, a high AOV, but then especially in the food and beverage space in which we invest in a lot of brands, um, consumers might decide that they don't actually like your product and might not come back, or they might have enough and they've forgotten about you by the time that you would want them to reorder. And so I would say ultimately it's going back to that repeatability and how do you get consumers back to your brand? Because down the line, what you're truly trying to build and what gives you the most enterprise value for your brand is, is that level of consumer love and brand equity. And that makes a lot of sense just because of your investing in food and beverage brands it's really hard to be first order profitable with like a food and beverage brand online, right? And so looking at more of that like like LTV CAC ratio, it makes sense in terms of what you're investing and looking at. Um, Keith and Jonathan, I know that you you both look at a variety of different type of business models and and, and different types of companies, uh, not just exclusively in in food and beverage. What matters more to you when you're kind of analyzing a brand? Um, first order profitability and looking at just like the e-commerce channel, um, we could say first order profitability or strong LTV uh, 
versus CAC. Maybe Keith, we can go for you for this. Sure, I might um, adjust your question a little bit just yeah. to mod uh, modify it based on what I see and kind of if, if a brand were to think about its journey from startup to if they ever get their multi-year profitability, when you think about what determines what they could be eligible for along the way in debt financing, right? The uh, primary thing that drives it, there's two things. One is your revenue size. And then ultimately, if you or if you never get to profitability, if you get to profitability, even on one year, it opens up SBA lending, which a lot of you may have heard of, not the disaster lending, not idle lending, but the SBA 7A products that requires one year of profitability on a filed tax return, key thing, filed tax return. And then multi-year profitability opens you up to commercial bank products, cheaper term loans, cheaper lines of credit. Before that profitability kicks in, what's available to you out there are all the working capital ones that probably for most of the brands on this call flood their inboxes all the time. Uh, it's where the fintechs are very active. They're buying your list. They're getting to know who you are. They're soliciting your business and they're not requiring you to be profitable. That said, what I've observed, and this is probably, I wonder Cessna, Jonathan, think about this too, is probably in the last about 12 months, most people, most uh, of these fintechs and others have tightened their credit profile. Essentially, what I mean by that is they might be, they want to do higher value deals. They were more willing to work with smaller companies early on that might have been earlier stage in revenue. They've raised that bar. Also, they're paying attention a lot more to capital efficiency, similar to equity players and looking how people are effectively deploying the capital they got in equity raises. And then the last thing I'll say is cash runway is super critical. Pre-pandemic, if the company was had a lot of red ink, because that was still a business model that was pretty popular, they were still... Uh, it was still possible for them to get working capital financing from either traditional sources or fintechs. Now what we're seeing is more of those people are paying much more attention to do you, if you are running losses, they might not work with you right now until such time as you've become cash flow positive, or if you have enough cash that covered your expected losses until you turn cash flow positive. And when you say I I really appreciate that response, when you say fintechs, are you referring to like revenue based financing solutions? It can be revenue-based, it can be funding production, it can be purchase order financing. It can live anywhere, essentially anywhere. Along, along the cash conversion cycle from purchase order and production up front through to when you issue an invoice to when you're generating receivables and you have finished goods inventory on stock, even to when you're on the other side of that uh, financing accounts payable. Got it. Um, Jonathan, as you're like advising many companies in terms of, let's say that they have achie achieved some level of product market fit and, and they are seen to be growing. How do you um, um, advise um, which type of debt problems and uh, products and also when debt might actually make sense for, uh, for the company that a debt product actually, you know, would actually make sense um, given their situation? Yeah. So I think it certainly depends on, on the situation in the case where I'll just give an example of a, a company that's been D2C. Now they're branching out into retail. Um, typically, there's going to be you know one huge kind of sell-through order to, to prove viability in, in the brick-and-mortar space. That's a lot of uh, inventory that needs to be purchased. Often, you'll have to put an order in, call it 90 days out before you take delivery, uh, and then you might not get paid for another 60 days from that retailer, right? So, talking 150 days, um, assuming you know they pay within 60 days, uh, just on a cash conversion cycle right there. So I think that's a gap you really want to try to bridge with debt. Um, and then on the equity side, yeah, it, it's really trying to fuel growth. 
Uh, and, and that's what the equity investors are, are wanting you to do with it. They're not wanting you to pay down debt or necessarily you know, purchase inventory. You know, the return on inventory is you know, relatively fixed. You have, you have your margin on there, but return on marketing spend, that's what can really kind of exponentially grow that business. So, and I mean, we've also seen, you know, maybe some of like the fintech type companies also being able to underwrite on the, on the debt side or non-dilutive capital side for on marketing spend, for example. When does it make sense to maybe use that capital rather than maybe equity in order to, um, in, in order to go your business? Sure. If that was directed to me, I'll, I'll just quickly yeah, sure. know. Go for it. Yeah. yeah. The, the thing is, debt is, of course, cheaper than equity, right? So if you're, if you're having trouble raising equity or if you're having trouble raising equity at a valuation you feel is fair, then yeah, maybe pursue that debt route for, for something like that. When, when Cessna, do you think it makes sense for a company? I know we talked about you know, product market fit and what have you, but we, of course, have seen a number of you know, bootstrap companies do extremely well. Um, um, you don't have to raise an equity round in order to be, um, you know, a, um, a become an iconic brand thinking about like, you know, a, a butcher box, um, a dude wipes, um, uh, a athletic greens for, I know that they just raised a big round, but they've, you know, they got to like 150 million, I think bootstrap, which is pretty impressive. But in your mind as a lever, when does it actually make sense to maybe raise an equity round and, and what's maybe a good reason to raise an equity round? So, I heard a lot of threads that I think Keith and Jonathan really um, said well or noted well, but particularly around the element of capital efficiency. Um, so in terms of when might be the right time to bring on an equity partner, it, and as Jonathan mentioned, debt is definitely cheaper than equity. Part of bringing on an equity partner is you're really bringing on a partner. That person is effectively joining you in the ownership of the work and the business that you've grown from like top to bottom that you put your blood, sweat and tears in. And so you really want to make sure that the partners are with you through and through because it is it can be a very long journey and a really tough one. Um, in terms of equity, I think the way that uh, we evaluate it is reflective of capital efficiency. So at a very high level, the idea is we want to, our equity investors often want to know that their capital will help you scale and help really fuel growth. So they want to understand at what point do you know that if you receive a dollar extra, whether from debt or from equity, that you can achieve at least that dollar back, if not more, and hopefully much more than that. And so the point at, I think the right time to bring on equity is when you feel very confident that if you're putting dollars to work, somebody else's dollars to work, that it's going to return at least those dollars back, if not more. There's some level of investment you have to do in order to, say, launch at a new retail partner if you're trying to get on shelves and build that inventory, et cetera. But you want to build within yourself your own level of confidence based on, you know, cash conversion and understanding your financials, uh -huh. that how much you can really take on and how much you really need to support um, each new growth initiative and how long it will take for you to see that return. Yeah, Keith, I don't know if you have, if, if you have any thoughts on this in terms of when, um, when brands should potentially raise like an equity round. Yeah, I'd love to add to what Cessna said. And I think for me, um, when I have strategy calls with clients, what I try to get to first is understand, based on where you are right now and the analyses that you've done, what do you think your cash requirements are overall to build your business? And an example could be, let's say someone 
says they need, say, about $3 million. Maybe they're a $3 million company right now. They have an ambition and a pathway within two years to maybe grow to 10. What I try to do is say, okay, of that $3 million, let's see how we can build it from all sources, right? Sometimes it includes making additional contributions from their own resources, from friends and family. They can always put money in as a loan from officer. It doesn't have to go in as equity. So there can be a buildup from themselves and outward in their circles of influence. Then you can layer that with debt options if they're available, fintech. I'd make a distinction between debt and fintech just because of the underwriting. And then equity to have a holistic strategy. And But most importantly, I really try to dive into the mindset of the founders to say, building again what, what Cessna said is, if you are entering into a partnership with someone, not just taking their money, but really essentially getting married in a way that, hey, I want to take that phone call. You know, when, when they're calling, I'm excited to speak with them. I know that they'll help me grow and be bigger than I thought I could be by myself. So you know, even beyond the, the cash requirements, I really encourage our founders to think about, is their mindset ready for this? Are they capable of being a good partner in a relationship? Because that usually is what, what I see, even as much as the money, is what results in a happy ending and tremendous scaling. Jonathan, can, can you talk to us a little bit about what, from your view, capital efficiency means? Maybe, I know it, it, it can vary in terms of like what, what specific, you know, category that we're talking about, but let's say, for example, you know, like a food and beverage company, let's just uh, say, since obviously Cessna is invest, investors in a bunch of food and beverage brands, how, when you are advising and, um, and, and helping companies out and maybe like the food and beverage space, what does capital efficiency actually mean to you if they're actually a, a capital efficient company? Sure. So, I mean, I'll typically learn that, look at um, more traditional metrics, return on invested capital, return on assets, return on equity. And that will work if you're, you know, much more developed company, um, especially a publicly traded company, for sure, those are what you're looking at. But in, in this earlier stage, it's a little bit tricky. And I think, you know, the standard LTV to CAC does give you some sort of picture at capital efficiency. You're looking at, okay, what is this um, customer costing me? What kind of return am I getting on that? And that's one part of the business. And I think to earlier discussion, it's really important to get that part right. Because even if you're not yet profitable on a net income basis, if you have that LTV to CAC, you know, at three or more or something around there, uh, there's a, probably a lot of operating leverage built into that business. You have a lot of probably fixed costs within your operating expenses. If you can continue to grow at a similar LTV to CAC, um, you can certainly become profitable down the line. And it's very important certainly more important nowadays than you know, two years ago to show that path to profitability, even if you're not currently profitable. And so I think LTV to CAC for the earlier stage and then the more traditional ROIC, return on invested capital, ROA, ROE for the you know, later stage businesses. Cessna, I know that you, um, I, just, like, just like Jonathan said, I know that in this market, um, there's a lot of um, advice to founders saying you have to be profitable, focus on profitability um, versus growth. Um, and certainly like the equity markets weren't, weren't what they were maybe last year or two years in terms of, you know, the rate of, of capital deployment. What are you advising some of your own companies or companies that you talk with? And what does profitability mean to you? Because obviously these companies still um, have to grow, right? Um, and, 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 and that's obviously the hope in order for, um, for you all to, to, to generate a, a return and exit. But how are you kind of thinking about today's landscape and, and, and 
in advising companies? So I will mention that most of the brands, if not all of them, by the time at which we invest are not yet profitable. Um, And there, there is a trajectory we like to be able to see, but that might mean in the next 12 months, it really does depend on, we like to say that there's not a playbook approach. Each company is different. Each environment they're building in is completely different. Each team is different. So I, I think we, we definitely pride ourselves on trying to make sure we see the whole picture and, and learn that with the teams themselves. Um, and when, in terms of the ways in which we're advising our companies, I think something that I come back to often is how, what, is, what are our best ways in order to control our narrative? And that really means setting, being strategic on the milestones that we're setting and being aligned as a team on what we're going to invest behind and become non-profit, like unprofitable for versus determining whether this is the right environment or what's upcoming, where we need to push those levers towards prof- profitability. Um, and so I guess, for example, I would say last year in particular, the, the uh, capital fund or landscape was really challenged. And um, we knew and we had seen valuations and multiples come down a lot and thus supported some of our brands pushing more, putting the, you know, taking their foot off the pedal more in terms of making sure that they have the path to profitability. And a lot of our brands are somewhere around um, being break even, if not um, uh, with insight. And so I think that it's it was helping them navigate when is the right time to foot, push forward or versus extending cash runway until a time at which it would be in a better environment to invest in their next milestone or growth lever or bring on new equity partners, et cetera. That could translate into, you know, like analyzing different sales channels and analyzing if they're in retail, um, different mm-hmm. retail partners mm-hmm. and measuring uh, to see if there is, um, if this, if this channel could become profitable, for example, mm-hmm. or if it is working, maybe measuring against different brands um, when it comes to velocities um, uh, from that realm. Um, and, and I'd imagine maybe even shutting down some retail channels if it's not, if it's not working. Is that, is that kind of right? Yeah, just to, yeah, uh, I think that's a really great direction to take this. Um, I do, another area that we also evaluate some of the investment behind growth of brands is you're just testing to learn and see, but what hopefully controlling that narrative is about is it's a deliberate test and you have milestones and goalposts of how long will we be testing? What is the data that we need to see in order to make the decision of, do we stay in this and continue to invest or do we need to pull out? Because based on our current unit economics or this channel at this time or whatever other levers, this might not be the right channel for us. This might not be the right partner for us at this time. No, that's a great thought. Keith, do you have any um, thoughts on this in, in, in terms of profitability? Yeah. Profitability is, is again, it's an, it's a broad term for me in the debt world, again, because the traditional bank financing does require the backward looking profitability again, on a filed tax return, sometimes trailing 12-month revenue, right, to get the lowest cost of capital. Um, That said, I'm seeing that some banks, particularly SBA lenders and some aggressive fintechs, are becoming a little bit more aggressive again to think about if profitability is nearby, maybe to widen their credit box a little bit and, and consider taking on 
uh, and making loans and uh, working capital available to companies, particularly if they are backed by some strong venture capital companies, not recently with a raise, but perhaps over time. The strength of the cap table is playing a role that I didn't think I would see and had not seen prior. So, um, but profitability, I think again, as long as I have it within 12 months, I can do almost anything on, on the debt side somewhere. There's some way I can fit someone in. If it's farther out than that, if it's 18 months from now or so, it's a lot harder. How um, You also said something earlier as well about, he talked a little bit about like the underwriting, how the underwriting of debt versus like the fintechs, what, what they're doing is different. Can you kind of elaborate in terms of what that, um, what that actually looks like and when each kind of traditional debt versus versus some of the, 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 the fintech options make, might make sense for your business? Yeah. And I always encourage everyone to, it's a, it's a, it's like having another full-time job to do all that work. Right. But to the degree you can make the time and I hope you will, I encourage everyone to look at again, the traditional options such as factoring or asset-based lending, which is against receivables and inventory or purchase order financing, kind of or purchase order also, also in that traditional space. In the fintechs, lending against the same things, the big difference is the fintechs are often using formulae or algorithms. They're connecting to your QBO, your QuickBooks Online or your accounting software, and they're digging in a lot of times with formulaic approaches to say, this is what will drive our decision to fund or not. On the traditional side, and yes, this, I'm reflecting a little bit of my bias. Please forgive me. On the traditional side, all of us in this room here would have more advocacy opportunities. So Cessna, Jonathan, you and you both and I would be able to do a bit more salesmanship, right? To say, maybe this particular data point isn't great, but this is how you could look at this. A good example where sometimes the algorithms can be troublesome in fintech underwriting is we know that a lot of our early stage brands, their revenue is incredibly spiky, right? And if they're looking at bank statements through April 30th and your $150,000 payment came in on May 1st and your April was awful as a result, but you expected that payment in April, it can completely blow a deal. And sometimes we might not have the opportunity to go back in and fight for that. And that's so that's a bit of the downside of algorithmic-based underwriting versus traditional. You could kind of go back and say, but wait, here's the first five days of May, right? Let's look at this again. That's kind of where I see the, the push me, pull you. We know that the algorithm-based fintech providers make quicker decisions. So if it does work out, it gets funded faster. The traditional ones take longer. And yet that's why I feel looking at all of them, I'm not, I mean, not work, talking with 25 people, you could do that all day long. But to the degree you can choose one or two from each category, I think you're likely to have a better overall result. And I'll just finish by saying, and there are possibilities of stacking uh, debt financing instruments to go with each other, as long as they live on different parts of that cash conversion cycle from purchase order and production all the way through to getting paid. And that said, all of those can live harmoniously with an SBA 7A loan. And so that's a lot of the work I do behind the scenes. I'm trying really hard to connect fintechs with each other, the ones I often see on balance sheets, so that they can make sure that, hey, yes, I can work with this other provider to get the founder the most that she or he would qualify for. Got it. Got it. And I, I, I would say, Jonathan, do you, do you have any thoughts too around um, maybe some of the differences between 
underwriting debt versus uh, versus fintechs as you're as you're kind of advising some of your um, some of your companies as well in terms of what like the, the their best best options would be. Yeah, I think Keith's completely right. The, the pros on the fintech side is you're you're getting an almost immediate yes or no. Um, really shortens the time between funding. The cons, of course, is yes, if your um, historical financials don't you know portray your business in a way that you feel uh, it should be portrayed. Uh, if you have some knowledge as to what's going to happen in the next month or two or three months or a few quarters, you really want to make sure that, that gets out there. And that's a little bit harder to do in, in, with those with those lenders. But with a more traditional lender who's taking a much more fundamental approach, um, I mean, they're both taking fundamental approaches, but um, the traditional lenders who are really digging in a little bit more, um, being a little bit more qualitative or as qualitative as debt yes. people can be. Uh, yeah, I think that's the pro. Uh, the traditional lender side of it obviously they're doing due diligence on your company to make sure and 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 thinking about you know what the what their risk tolerance is how should companies as well run due diligence process on 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 a lender for example um it will go to i'll take a shot first and um i think one good source that's often ignored is most brands know lots of other brands so one first step i would take is talk to your peers and see what their experiences have been with lenders, ask them the hard questions. You know, is it not, is the financing great and is it good to work with them? We know, and none of us is gonna mention names here, but there's been a lot of turmoil in the FinTech space of here today, gone tomorrow, or I'm financing you today and I'm cutting you off tomorrow. And we've seen that, and that's a bit nasty and it's a bit of a horrible surprise that I saw a lot going on in Q4 and Q1 of this, of these, of 22, 23. So as far as vetting them, right? Talk to your peers, see what their experience has been. Remember that even if you're someone starting out in your early stage, you're you're interviewing them as much as they're interviewing you. Think of yourself as an equal. You're not kissing someone's ring and going to the throne begging to be um, given money. They want to work with good companies. And so vetting them is really asking the good questions more than anything, not just on the financing and the structure, but how it, what does it look like to work with you? What's the day-to-day look like? How will I know that the money will always be there? And the last consideration I would give, again, based on what we saw going on with bank failures, is asking people, who are your investors? Who are your LPs? Who's backing you? Uh, Are you backed by a large multinational bank? Are you backed by investors? Will you be here next year? Uh, That's something I added uh, only in the last couple of months, just based upon where we are. Um, Just be curious. And no question is a bad question. No, that's um, I I, th- I think that's that's great advice. Um, how about you, Cessna? I know obviously you're on the equity side here, but but how are you also? Um, I'd imagine you're also with with your portfolio companies thinking about how they can utilize and maximize debt themselves. How do you think about how? What's been like their own like due diligence process for um for the lenders? And also, if you have any thoughts around the fintechs versus maybe like traditional uh, debt financing. Yeah, I echo a lot on just the comparison between the two for what Keith and Jonathan say. So I don't know if I have much more on that end. But um, actually, we work very closely with a lot of lending partners to support our brands and bringing on non-dilutive financing because we do understand that there's a balance of what we need to invest in growth versus you just really need more capital for that working capital and building what is everyday stable business. Um 
we actually do support our brands in diligencing other lenders. So we have a lot of trusted partners that we work closely with. And I think something to remember at the end of the day and to the point that Keith mentioned of, you know, it's it's a two-way street. It's a two-way street with equity investors as well. Like you are bringing on a partner at the end of the day, businesses are run by human beings and everyone wants to be treated with respect. And hopefully they're both, each direction is trying to seek a long-term positive relationship where they both succeed. So I think that's on the equity side, that's on the lending side. And I think um, that's just good business. <laughs> and um, in terms of evaluating them, a lot of it is we we do really try to focus on being aligned with where the founders are and know that you know they are the ones in the weeds every day running the show and doing a million things at once. And so ultimately, finding lending partners who are able to do that or are willing to do that too is something we really seek. A lot of that can be found in how they structure terms. Um, I know we talked a little bit about, um, I know Keith mentioned, it's possible to stack different part, uh, uh, types of uh, lending instruments. Ultimately, I think there's no right or wrong way to do it. But the more you do it, it's it does introduce a level of sophistication that you just need to be prepared for, whether that's bringing on debt and equity, bringing on double lending partners, et cetera. Um, and so that, that I think is um, a lot where the human element comes in. Part. Can that be um, like a red flag to you, Sesna, when you're um, analyzing brands that they have maybe multiple debt partners and there's already kind of that, th that level of sophistication that you're talking about um, uh, as you're thinking about their, their capital partners? I think it can definitely be seen in both direction. One is very, um, so one, it might be seen as very sophisticated or even very scrappy if they've been able to pull together different loans to bootstrap as much as possible. But I think there is that level of, do you know what you're doing? And some of that just kind of comes out with time. Um, and so it, that, that does show through at, at a certain point as well. So we have a question here from Terrence. Um, what are the KPIs that separate healthy brands that can scale efficiently versus brands that end up exploding? What should benchmark KPIs, what uh, benchmark KPIs should founders be paying attention to? Attention to uh, Jonathan, we'll, we'll start you off with this one. Sure. And I probably should have mentioned these back when we were talking about capital efficiency, but um, earlier stage burn multiples, certainly one of them. Mm -hmm. You're basically looking at, okay, how much you know, burn did you, in the period versus you know, growth and you know new ARR. Uh, another one's probably magic number. Um, you know less uh, high profile, but still used. Uh, you're essentially looking at okay, how much new um, revenue did you generate in a period versus you know what was the marketing spend the period before? Typically, you'll you'll view it as there's a lag between when you spend that you know mark those marketing dollars and when you generate the return. So I think those tend to be uh, Good examples of KPIs, along with, of course, LTV to CAC uh, and, and other you know, more well-known uh, examples. Keith, if you have any thoughts on this as well, thank you. Yeah, when I think of KPIs, um, as everyone probably knows, they're not a determinant typically of any type of debt financing, certainly not bank financing. But more sophisticated underwriters do take a look, um, especially if you're providing a narrative about how your company is performing. I would say it's if you have excellent KPIs and you're applying for some type of debt financing, talk about them because they can be a plus. They usually are not a determinant, but it can go to something more towards a positive outcome. Um, that said, a lot of lenders 
and some fintechs are doing comparisons. They're doing benchmarking across their portfolio, taking a look at if I'm financing snack companies, for example, and you know that your gross margin is 50%, well, you know that you're performing at a very high level for a snack company. If your snack company is at 20%, well, you've got some work to do. Um, so they're looking at the less sophisticated financial metrics probably and the less sophisticated ones other than equity or a fractional CFO would. Yet the basics of gross margin, sometimes things like velocity, if you want to talk a little bit about how you're performing in your channels, sometimes your return on investment in the direct-to-consumer. I would say kind of, you know, the surfacey level KPIs are important. The deep dive ones are more in the equity side. No, I, I, I appreciate those thoughts. Cecil, if you have anything to, uh, uh, to add on this topic, um, as well as like, let's say you have a brand that has maybe great KPIs and we can dive into what that means. How do you make sure that um, they end up not growing too quickly um, and, 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 and end up exploding, even though it might be attractive when you first, you know, met the brand, but how do you think about like growth trajectory in general? Mm. So I, yeah, I think I'm alluded to before as well, but thinking through quality of revenue, I'll touch base on some of those key metrics first and then maybe return to Perfect. quality of revenue. But it, um, yeah, echoing uh, Keith and Jonathan on gross margin in particular, really getting a sense of where that is for your category. It does differ. I would say a healthy uh, food and beverage uh, gross margin at the highest level, more established business, you could say is somewhere around 30%. If you're anywhere below that, it's really hard to get operating leverage in order to continue to fuel the growth behind your brand, whether that means bringing on new people to help support opening new doors, whether that means investing in marketing. Um, and so that's a, a level that we like to see. But again, it sort of doesn't mean you have to be there, but it's being able to see your path to that um, at a certain point within the means that you have at the at the moment. And I offer that more as just so I know people like Anchor, so that may, maybe that's one general one to, to offer. Um, you know, I would say that, especially if you're working in retail, and I, I'm not sure how many um, consumer brands are on the call, but um, really watching trade spend. And this is an area where if you're launching new doors and, and opening up a lot of distribution. It can be really great for growth, but that is where a lot of black box deductions and other potential expenses come through that you might not be prepared for that ultimately hit the bottom line. Um, and then I would say that the other two KPIs I would really keep an eye out or two areas I really keep an eye out because I think this is what leads to the highest burn and like it's the hardest to retract if you're already kind of spiraling in this direction are percent of um, what percent of net sales have, has been set on marketing and on payroll mm. because I think there's um, a lot of um, I think it's very understandable that you would want to invest ahead of growth if you know you're opening up new doors you want to bring on a team member to manage that region or help open those doors for you but I think you know at the end of the day you're offering you're bringing on new team members you're offering them jobs they have livelihood as well like it's really people is really hard to retract. And on marketing spend as well, I think over the last couple of years, especially as there's been a proliferation of brands that have started on e-commerce, 
CAC and customer acquisition costs have just gotten more expensive. You're also at the whim of a lot of marketing channel spend. And ultimately, you know, I would like to say I have some level of sophistication in this, but it's a black box as well in a lot of ways of how do you diversify across these channels to get to an efficient CAC. And an efficient CAC is really based on um, your own metrics and, and model. But um, I would say making sure to watch how much you're really spending ahead of payroll and when you expect those people to kind of pay off on your investment um, in them and then marketing spend and making sure you're not spending too much ahead of understanding what the return on that marketing spend will be. Yeah, I think those are great thoughts. I mean, also just to add on the e-commerce side, since um, you obviously have dealt with high CACs um, um, you know, uh, through the past few years and now with e-commerce penetration coming down um, due to the, uh, well, hopefully knock on wood, but the pandemic being over or or, or, or whatever we kind of call this period with with that e-commerce penetration coming down, then you're um, then you're seeing brand sales actually kind of decrease because um, they kind of boomed during the um, during the pandemic. And now I've had to um, uh, come down as well. So you're kind of caught with like a double whammy with like rising CACs and as well as lowering e-commerce penetration um, uh, too, which that's then really tough um, uh uh, really kind of a tough situation for brands today um, if if DDC is one of their main channels. Um, how long, we talk about kind of like new sales channels and also trade spend and um, touched on trade spend a little bit, um, but how long do you give a new growth, a, a new sales channel, um, let's, you know, on on the retail side to see if it, if it actually could be maybe a viable sales channel? Maybe he says that we'll go back to you for this one just to kick it off. Yeah, I think it's a really great question and it is challenging, especially for emerging brands who might not yet have access to data. Generally, I would say that being able to see a quarter's worth, if not two quarters worth of time to just get a baseline sense of what does this business look like today is is great if you can get access to data or creatively find ways to understand your PO purchaser patterns um, with your retailers. But um, there is some some time investment, and generally we, you know, we do quarterly board meetings with our brands, and so we are checking in on a quarterly basis because there can be a lot of noise. I think somebody mentioned earlier, um, you might expect a retailer's PO to come in at the end of January. Instead, it comes in at the beginning of February, so there's a little bit of static. Um, but um, I would say at least a quarter or two to kind of level set on where the what the business looks like. Ultimately, a year helps you see what sort of seasonality you might also have as well. But um, I think it's just being diligent on on trying to get to that answer as soon as possible. Cool. So it says that you say one to two quarters at least, um, but up to a year, then you get a lot more, then you kind of get a lot more data and, and information. Keith, how do you think about this question? Uh, I can give you an example of a couple of companies I'm talking to and some of the things they're considering. So I'll do it with a couple of very quick case studies. One company is self-funded to date, and um, they have gotten to a certain level where they have a retail shop. They happen to be makers of cheese, and they have uh, direct customers that they sell. They sell to wine shops, and they sell to what happens to be uh, small natural retailers across the country. And one of the things that they're contemplating right now is looking at their cash requirements going forward, knowing that they have 100% of their company. They're a little bit frightened based on what they're reading on LinkedIn and in other places about what is it really going to take for me 
and us, this has to be the husband and wife team, so there's even more at stake, for them to think about what is it really going to take for me to succeed in the natural channel if I go through distribution. And they're frightened. And they're, try they're asking this question right now. When will we know if we've got this figured out or not? If we have real opportunities to scale because they happen to be in, they think they can do extremely well in their home state because of their um, retail shop. They have a lot of emails and a lot of customers that said, sure, I'll buy you at this store if you come into it. But beyond that, they just can't be sure. Um, so there's that one aspect, right? From just a strict debt financing perspective, the straight answer is it doesn't really matter to me <laughs> as long as the numbers are and the results are getting there. Um, the one thing that I, I can't, you know, I really hate to see is someone staying too long into something that doesn't work for them. And that sometimes goes out about, that goes beyond my transaction hat, but I will often see those patterns where I say, hey, this doesn't seem to be working. And um, usually when I talk to brands, they get that sense after as early as six months, but as long as 12. So six to 12 months for you is roughly when you have an idea if this, if as you're expanding in retail stores, maybe it's the same um, retailer or to a different one, um, that um, that six months to 12 months, you you should get an idea if it's a viable channel. Um, how about you, Jonathan? Are you, are you seeing the similar things? Yeah, I, I think those timelines make a lot of sense. Essentially, you're, you're trying to decide or come to a decision as quickly as possible. And so that's, you know, you're data dependent. And as long as it takes you to you know, generate enough data such that you can make an intelligent decision, um, that's as much time as it takes. And typically that tends to be the length of time. Uh, but yeah, new, new sales channels are very difficult. You, you're basically, from a CFO side, you're building a new model for each of yeah. these. You're, you're basically viewing this as a, a new business venture. And you're going to assess the profitability. You're going to have assigning budgets to it. Um, and sure, your inventory can be you know, somewhat fungible and you can move it from channel to channel. But uh, outside of that, you, you really need to get a sense of you know, what this channel's profitability looks like. And it takes time. If I could say one more thing about, about this as well. Um, so I think given that it takes so long to understand if you've achieved, is this working? If, have I achieved product market fit? When we're advising brands, whether we partnered with them or not, when you're considering, I think another major question we often get is how much should I raise? Um, ultimately, what we advise a lot of brands is raise at least enough for a 12 to hopefully 24 month runway because finance, finding financing partners takes a lot of time. It can take two to six months, if not longer. And, it's, and I've seen much longer for a lot of brands over the last couple of years. And so you don't want to be in a position where you're sort of at the whim of whoever it was, whatever partner might um, give you capital at a time at which might not be the best time for you. And so ultimately in, plan in backwards planning, it's thinking through what are the metrics, what are the milestones I'm really looking to achieve in order to decide if this is working or not. And then like on top of that, build out that, that proof or those proof points and um, build in time for fundraising. And lending processes are also sometimes quite heavy as well. There are those tools or those fintech companies that can kind of do things immediately. And maybe that's the solution you need at that point. But for traditional lenders and partners, you know, they might go through an audit. They might do some other things that take time, um, not only uh, for them to do it, but your bandwidth as well. If you if you're the ones really managing it, 
we we've seen especially kind of early stage uh brands back when maybe the d to c brands so to speak were like pretty hot or you know, there's a lot of investor appetite in investing in DDC brands that DDC brands were actually using equity in order to finance their inventory mm-hmm. um are we seeing similar type of things like uh says like when you make an investment in a company is there like a certain per- percentage that's actually going towards inventory financing um maybe because it might take some time in order to line up those um those debt or non-dilutive partners for inventory or not so much anymore that um that that, that equity capital is not going towards actually financing the it's hard for me to say sort of on, on a more general level um i would say there is a lot more caution around e-commerce brands, and I and I say e-commerce to incorporate direct to consumer and Amazon and other online channels, of which there just are more now. Um, and so, you know, I think oftentimes if you're at a level where you can bring on a uh, maybe credible equity partner, that's very favorable to lending partners as well. So. For for the partners that we work with, that it generally takes less time because they um, ultimately are underwriting your equity partner as uh, as well as you, as your own company. So um, it's it's hard for me to say at the high level if if kind of we're we're past that stage, but um, in general, it's it all takes time. <laughs> if you have any comment as well around that, um, uh, Keith and Jonathan, feel free to to let us know. Yeah, I'll go very quick. I'm finding that a lot of it is a function of their gross margin early on. Mm -hmm. If they tend to have lower gross margin, getting debt options might put them in the red, that the cost of the financing might be higher than their gross margin because early stage production financing, inventory financing can be in the 20s and even in the 30s percent on an APR basis. So uh, for early stage folks starting out, if they have lower margins, I often see that they have done that analysis. They then understand this is the cost of capital and they might come in knowing that they themselves have to be the funders up to a certain point. In fact, in a general sense, what I'm seeing a lot more of is founders coming in who have prepared a bit of a personal war chest and who have the friends and family commitments maybe to get them to what they think could be what we started out with, talking about product market fit and or a revenue number between say 500,000 a million using their own funds so that when they are going out there for debt it will be you know a couple of notches below in the pricing that they otherwise would have paid if they got it at the very early stages and by doing their own financing they're going to look more attractive to Cessna and other equity providers cuz probably they might have they might achieve that product market fit with their own resources and or have significant or good enough KPIs to garner the interest of the right equity partners at that time. Yeah, j- just just a quick note on that. So I completely agree. If your gross margins are called 40%, 50%, and you're doing some revenue-based financing where you're giving up, call it 20%, 15 20% of revenue you know, each month, you know, your gross margins, if they were 50 and you're paying 20% you know, to the lender, you're immediately down to 30%, right? And that's a very slim margin to work with. So you're probably going to be burning significant amount of cash, you know, after operating expenses come out of it for the period of that loan. That's just something you always have to be you know, cognizant of uh, with, with these revenue-based uh, financings. That's a great, it's a great point. And um, I think it's a great spot to end it on. Uh, Cessna, Keith, and Jonathan, thank you so much for your time. This was a lot of fun. Thanks, Thanks for all. Thank I learned you. a lot too. <laughs> awesome. Awesome.
It's great to hear. Um, thank you, everyone, for uh, for coming out. Um, really, really appreciate uh, Terrence. Thank, thanks for asking that uh, for asking that question. Um, again, Tesna, Keith, and Jonathan, thanks again for your time. I'm Mike. Uh, this has been such a pleasure putting this on. Um, this has been put on by Manufacturer.com. We help uh, consumer brands source, manufacture, and finance um, their inventory. Um, if this is happened to be a need, feel free to contact me or or contact us. Um, and uh, thank you again so much for your time. Um, we'll be doing more of these, so um, a lot more to come. Thank you. Thank you.